0: So, welcome back everybody to another episode of The Birders' Guide. How have we all been this week? Here in SA, it's been a pretty good week for birding really, and in true typical fashion, the weather is going to be very average as soon as the weekend arrives, but what can you do? Not much you can do about the weather. So, in other news, it is my birthday today, and for the recent and perhaps not, too recent past, June 19th has probably been the most boring date of the year. Nothing ever happens on the 19th of June, until today that is, when the 19th of June officially became World Albatross Day. Now depending on whether you're an IOC or Clements devotee, will determine how many potential species you've got to find. E-bird, which is Clements, uh, has 15 species, IOC has 22. Personally, I prefer Clements, but that is purely and simply because that's what eBird uses and that's where I record all my sightings. So I've seen six of the 15 Clement species, namely Yellow-Nosed, White-Capped, Salvin's, Black-Browed, Royal and Wandering. Although admittedly Pelagic Trips are not something that I do many of, but hopefully, well... Hopefully they'll get up and running again soon, but once they do, hopefully I'll get out there and um, get the remaining ones that are easily seen around Australia anyway. So what's been happening this week around the country? Well, in SA, the ringed plover that I mentioned last week was found again uh, by a different person and photographs put up onto the Australian Twitch's Facebook page. And there was a little bit of to and froing around whether it was ringed plover or semi mated, but uh, it seems to be generally accepted as a ringed plover and it'll be interesting to see what the Rarities Committee decides on that. I don't want to sound too biased towards SA but there hasn't really been anything particularly rare or vagranty around the rest of Australia, although June, not really the greatest month for finding rarities but uh, we'll keep an eye out and let you know if anything else turns up. So without any further ado, let's get into today's conversation. You're listening to The Birders Guide with Michael Greenfields. Now this week I've done something a little bit different. I I got in touch with O'Reilly's, which is arguably probably the best known nature resort or birding resort in Australia. And I I was quite keen to hear what they had to say. But I wasn't sure that I was going to be able to fit a good chat about the history of the resort and a good chat about the birding of O'Reilly's and Lamington National Park into 30 Minutes. So what I've tried to do is in today's conversation we're talking to Shane O'Reilly, who's the Managing Director, about the history of the place, how it got to where it is in 2020, and then next week I'm going to be chatting to Matt Kelly, who is one of the top birders who works there, about all things birds within Lamington National Park and at O'Reilly's. And I'll be honest and say that I'm not entirely sure about the structure and whether it works. I'm I'm not sure that this conversation is bird related enough, but gotta try everything see if it works or not. So if you have an opinion, good or bad, feel free to send me an email facebook message uh, there's a there's a form on my website which you can chat to me on, and I'm interested to know what you think, whether you're interested or not. Um, always happy to improve. so with that in mind. This is still a very interesting conversation about O'Reilly's, probably a place that I would imagine everyone listening to this has at least heard of. So let's get into it and hear what Shane's got to say. Right, so Shane, welcome to the Birders Guide. Great to have you on the show. Thanks, Michael. Now, besides being the managing director, which I think is your title of O'Reilly's, you are also the chairman of the Queensland Tourism Industry Council. You obviously love tourism. How did you get into tourism? (laughs)
1: Yeah, <laughs> well, un- unfortunately, I think I was one of those poor people who were born into it. Um, so, yeah, b- being born at O'Reilly's, my, my father was a second generation O'Reilly with his brother who were running the business from the, from the, uh, the 50s uh, through to when I was born in the 60s and uh, and with my brothers and sisters and my cousins uh, in my generation, being the third, we all grew up there. We did schooling there, correspondence school. And uh, so for us, uh, living in a in a guest house in a resort was, was sort of what you did. That was home. So
0: before, did you start at O'Reilly's straight out of school or did you go learn your trade elsewhere?
1: Yeah, no, I, I didn't work there. I worked there when I was at school on weekends. We were always having to empty the bins and clean the toilets. And uh, I think, think I used to think at the end of the holidays, I'd get paid $20 for you know four weeks of work and think I was going well, but I got a feeling my parents actually did pretty well, I mean, hindsight. But um, uh, no, I actually went and worked in the hotel trade in Brisbane um, uh, for a hotelier who's passed on now, Gary Balkan, and uh, did a trainee managership with him for quite a number of years actually then went and worked in Africa, in the hotel industry over there for a couple of years. Um, and then I came back and and I was Gary's uh, manager again, overseeing a, a number of businesses, EOJ restaurants, hotels, and floating restaurants. And um, and uh, I think it was around the 1990 after Expo had finished and Queensland was pretty busy. And certainly O'Reilly's was busy. And every time I'd go home every now and again, and, My parents would sort of complain about how busy the place was because they were still doing, in 1990, pretty much what they did in 1960. They were still making everything, cutting every slice of meat, making every cake. And, of course, they didn't employ chefs or anything. And it was just driving them into the ground. So I sort of put an option to them. I'd come back and and manage the business for them if they, uh, you know, did what they wanted to do. And and as it turned out, they... uh, uh, they all retired in the in the in the late nineties and uh and, and then my generation took over
0: where in Africa were you working i was
1: i worked as an executive chef in uganda i didn't i haven't actually been to Uganda on a few countries I haven't but uh I was based actually in South Africa for my work but i have uh, i have traveled from uh, from Kenya right down overland a couple of times to south africa but but now I was working in a place called Seberg bay which was on the the Eastern Cape there from uh, from South Africa, beautiful beautiful place right on the ocean, and uh, um, yeah, it was a very interesting time to work uh, over there, and uh, uh, I must say enjoyed it. Uh, but uh, I'm probably glad I, I got out when I did as well.
0: Now going going back before your time, before you existed, I was just having a quick read up about O'Reilly's, and I come from a farm, grew up on a farm. And my question is, oh, so for those that don't know, O'Reilly's started off as a dairy farm. So my question to you, Shane, is what would possess somebody to start a dairy farm in what is land that is now Lamington National Park? That just seems like a huge amount of work.
1: Well, you're absolutely correct. to see, the O'Reilly's came from the Blue Mountains in a place called Meggon Valley. Um, on the western side, and uh, the, the ground there wasn't, uh, the soil there wasn't as rich, and they they've had a large family and, and cousins, and uh, this land was um, put up for selection by the Queensland government, and uh, back in uh, about 1910, and uh, the O'Reilly's came up and had a look at the land, and even though it was rainforest, they couldn't. Get their heads around that because they'd never seen rainforest before they were, they lived in eucalypt country but the soil was rich volcanic soil and they thought the soil was amazing and they could just mm. see if they cut the trees down and planted grass how how great the grass would be um, for for dairy cattle and beef cattle so they uh, uprooted their life and moved up to uh this part of uh of queensland and they bought um, eight, 100 acre blocks. So there was five brothers and three cousins, and they each bought a block of land. And uh, the good thing is, this will make everyone feel so much happier. Back in 1911, even then the government changed their mind and went and did the opposite of what they said they're going to do, even back then. So <laughs> things probably changed much. But they, uh, the government, after they sold the O'Reillys' eight blocks and told them once. Once there were 20 blocks taken, they would put a road through and it'd be a big daring community like Beechmont or Mullaney is today, I suppose, or, or was then. And uh, they bought these eight blocks and and were having to walk up there and, and cut timber down. But what the government did, they decided, oh, no, actually, we've decided we're going to make that a national park instead. And, and uh, some of the bureaucrats probably said in the time, well, there's, there's one family that bought eight blocks in the middle and they said, oh, well, they'll, they'll leave soon enough. And um, and, and the O'Reilly's had these eight 100-acre blocks in the middle of what was now a subtropical rainforest with no chance of a road at all to their property. Mm. And so they were wanting to leave. The government wanted them to leave. But instead, even though they'd bought a block each per person and they had different covenants like that to build a house on each block, the government wanted or, or negotiated with them as a group. And being eight brothers, three cousins of Irish descent, there was very very little hope of them probably agreeing on what day of the week it was, let alone a sacrifice <laughs> to government. And this went on for something like seven or eight years of correspondence back and forth, offering them money, sheep stations and uh, properties and different things, but they never agreed and they ended up staying there
0: well it's turned out quite well in well what's that now about 100 years Close so to it.
1: yeah
0: yeah so how did how did you get from cutting down trees to run a dairy farm to having a nature-based tourism resort when did that idea sort of kick off
1: well yeah it was it they had they had a very hard time because they had to cut down this rainforest which they'd never experienced before and Anyone knows rainforest, cutting a tree down a rainforest is really hard because it often doesn't fall. It's held up by a whole range of vines and uh, other trees, and quite often you have to cut three or four trees just to get a, a fall of timber. So uh, amazingly, no one was killed though, and they managed to cut these trees down. They had to, within a number of years, build a house or structure on each property. So what they did is they generally lived in the one place, but they built a few of these other buildings and they often built them over the boundary of two places, two properties, so that they've got the one structure, but it covered two properties. But it was interesting what happened. People, they sort of had a bit of a track that went around the edge of the cliff down to the valley where they were going to take the cream down. And they, when they got grass, they bought some cattle up and they started daring uh, and people from the valley particularly, heard about these mad Irishmen that had cut down the rainforest and up in the middle of the plateau. And uh, they would often ride up and, uh, you know, they'd tell them, that well, there's a spare shack over there if you want to stay. And so these people sort of stayed. And when it was declared a national park, um, you know, it was only the second park in Queensland after Tambourine and uh, people we uh, were very intrigued about why this was called a National Park and why we'd just save land, you know, good, rich land and what was special about it. And so more and more people came along and stayed with them. And so it was the early 20s where they decided uh, that they might just do what was quite common on the Gold Coast at Koolangatta and place like that. They had these big guest houses where people would all stay and, and they'd have dances and sing songs and, and uh, they'd stay a week or two. And I thought we might try one of those for the mountain, even though they had no road. Um, and uh, but that's what they went and did, and that that opened for business in Easter 1926. And up until COVID, it stayed open every day since. It uh, <laughs> it has been closed. It was closed there for a period of, of ten weeks, but uh, but it was was open for all the years from Easter 26 right up till till COVID at least. Mm. And when
0: did you, uh, when did you uh, go into nature tourism full time and
1: sell the cows? I guess. Yeah, people ask that, Michael. It's probably always has been like, um, what we sell is the park essentially around us. So there was thankfully after the Second World War, uh, they are looking for jobs for these soldiers coming back and they got them to build tracks through Lumion National Park. And so there's 160 kilometers graded walking paths all the way through the national park. So this great huge park, now you could get to waterfalls and creeks and, and to the lookouts and, and see things that I suppose are part of the reason why it's a national park to start with. And, and today a World Heritage National Park. Um, and, and that was a, a great, uh, a great thing to have those, uh, um, those walking tracks there that provided more people to come up, but, and the O'Reillys of course, as I said, followed maybe the guesthouse feel of cool and, and even in my young days still had dances and sing songs and, uh, made it very communal, uh, and it's probably still fairly communal in a lot of ways. but really we sell the park and uh, I tell people we've been taking, we go down and see the glowworms, which is a natural setting on a, on a, a cliff face next to the creek. We do that every night. And now it's the same glow worms or the same area. And uh, that we've been taking people to for decades upon decades upon decades. And we're we'll probably be doing in so many decades time as well. So mm. it, it's sustainable tourism and, uh, People want to see the glowworms up close, and they're there. And we we don't hurt them, we don't touch them, we don't shine any lights on them. And and they've been there for decades, and hopefully they'll stay there.
0: Now, I've just I've just pulled up Google Earth on my computer here. Now, to to the northwest of O'Reilly's, couple of k's, is a big cleared patch. Is that the original land they cleared when they settled there?
1: Well, there the, when I said the five brothers and the three cousins came up. That land is actually belongs to the three cousins and the, their descendants, the O'Reilly family, uh, who are just and obviously cousins of ours, they still own it and they still run cattle on it. And they've got a, oh, yeah. a little house that they rent out occasionally and, and we use the property for weddings or go out there for morning tea sometimes and boil a billy and things like that. But yeah, that's our cousin's property.
0: Nice. Now, in the 1950s, your father or grandfather, I assume, um, listed O'Reillys as a public company. What was what was their reasoning behind that? Did it pay off? Or I don't I don't think you're a public company currently, so it obviously
1: went back the other way yeah. at some point. No, yeah, it was back in the 40s. They and and they uh, I think they did that because uh, Binibora had started in the early 30s, and that was an unlisted public company and that gave them some money, of course, to get going. And I think the O'Reilly's thought that mightn't be a, a bad idea, uh, and uh, they tried that. Uh, what happened was my uh, grandfather, he had left the family business, he had decided they, he wasn't agreeing with the way they are doing business, I suppose, normal family thing, and he moved up to Mullaney, and he had a dairy up there, and then he bought a secondary, and then he bought a third dairy. He had three at one stage, and that's where my father and uncle were born and they were raised and schooling up in Mullaney. And um, uh, as the 1950s sort of area came era came around, uh, my father was out Jackarooing out west. My uncle Vince was a a fitter and turner in Brisbane, and my grand grandfather decided then that he probably needed to come back to the mountain because the business wasn't going that well. And uh, what he did was he sold his three dairies, he moved back up the mountain and he took over all the shares that uh, the other O'Reilly's owned and he went and bought all the shares back from the, those that owned the, the company and he delisted and made it back to a private company and then he told his two sons to come back to the business and they needed to come and work because he had to save the business. And uh, I know my father, uh, was jackie Ring at Wes, he wasn't all that keen on going back to the rainforest. He quite liked it out there and then possibly my uncle, I don't know as well, but they, they both came back and uh, from uh, from that period uh, onwards, they uh, they worked the business right up to their retirement in the late 90s and uh, and obviously. Uh, saw of phenomenal growth over those over those decades
0: so your father was obviously involved and your grandfather and now you you've you guys have done a fair few things in Queensland as the first one uh, one of which I read was that you guys built Queensland's first treetop walk
1: yeah well certainly uh, that, that that's correct. It's on our property, and it was built through the Green Mountains History Association, which my father started and was president. Um, and it was his idea. Um, he said he's a he's a he was one that was as a you know fairly creative with the on the nature side, uh, and he started a number of events and and the treetop walk. Whereas my uncle was probably more involved in the business side, so they worked very well together. Um, but the the treetop walk was the the idea of the treetop walk is many people think you get up there to get a view out, and um, uh, but the idea dad's idea was to get up into the canopy of the trees so you could see the bird life and the and the plant life that are at that level as opposed to being down close to the ground. Because as larger trees, you have different different um, fauna and flora than you do down on the ground of the rainforest and so his mm-hmm. idea was to get up into the canopy of the trees where you could see flowering orchids and things which you, you couldn't really see from the ground unless without binoculars um, and uh, it was a a little bit of a, an idea that he had that he didn't really realise was going to take off but it obviously got significant press all around the world really and had people coming from there's or Canada, or Brazil, or Malaysia, Borneo. There were people from all over the world coming to look at um, at this treetop walk and the idea of having a walkway to take you up, just to make you level with the canopy of the rainforest, and what that could mean. And today, you know, there are they're almost a dime a dozen. They're all over the place. They're they're much smarter these days. They're made of of steel. So that they're not rocking and rolling and uh, require huge amounts of maintenance like our one, our one does. But it's still the first, as far as we know, in the world. Uh, and um, and uh, it's still free. Uh, you don't have to pay anything. You can make a small donation to the Natural History Association if you want. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, it's been there for a, a long time. In the late '80s, it, it was uh, put together. So you guys have
0: expanded a fair bit. Well, obviously, a lot since the uh, 1920s. You also run a vineyard now and obviously a, a resort and guest houses and all of that. How much of that was your doing? Are you are you that way inclined? Are you a bit of a mover and a shaker or were they all there before you came on board?
1: No, certainly the uh, when I came on board, we were uh, in 1990, we had uh, we had 40 rooms. So we can take, you know, around about 100 people, I suppose. Um, uh, these days, we've got more rooms in the retreat, we can sort of take about a, um, about hundred 160 or so there these days. Um, but we also have 48 two and three bedroom villas and we can take, uh, that's another over 100 rooms down there. So we can take another probably 200 to 250 down there. And uh, we're currently um, halfway through the development of a campground, which uh, will give us uh, the capacity for probably another 150 or so, uh, which is a joint venture with the Queensland Government. Um, So it'll be something exciting to hopefully open for the September school holidays.
0: So your vineyard, I honestly don't know anything about this, except that it's mentioned quite often when people uh, talk about O'Reilly's, but you guys have a vineyard and uh an old homestead i think which is attached to that can you give us a rundown on what
1: that is and what its purpose is and yeah well the attraction was the homestead certainly there was no there wasn't much wine in queensland when uh, at that stage and certainly none outside of Stantle. but uh, uh there was a beautiful homestead moved to the property there for morrick it came out on three semi-trailers that's how big the homestead was and um, um you know, some enormous expense, I suppose. The homestead was put together, and uh, the fellow and his wife who did it then parted company, and uh, um, he never really finished the homestead. Uh, it sort of just sat there, and the grass got long, and and the property sort of grew up around it. Um, uh, and so. Um, after driving past for so many years just seeing it sitting there with no one living on it we talked to an agent about whether it was for sale or not as, as a diversification strategy having a property off, our, off the mountain that didn't uh, rely on our road and uh, um the agent told us that you know he'd been approached a number of times to sell but he didn't want to sell it um and uh and he said what do you want to do with it and we said well we want to use it as a commercial property, like as a homestead or something for people to come and see and enjoy. Um, and uh, it was just after that dinner, our grapes were becoming a little bit more prevalent out at Stanthorpe. And they said, we could even put a, a vineyard out the front if, it's, uh, if it worked. Anyway, uh, the agent said when he told him this about it not going to be a private home, it was going to be open to the public and that uh, other people would enjoy the house and it would be done up and that he sort of really liked the idea so uh, we ended up buying it and we bought the property next door as well and uh, changed the road configuration and planted grapes and uh, yeah and, and now we, uh, you know, it's pretty hard work I must say for the first 10 years of business or so but certainly it's a good little business now. It's It's, it's got alpacas there, you can take alpaca for a walk, picnics, uh, restaurant, weddings so it's, it's, it's a pretty busy little little centre, actually.
0: And I suppose vineyard is much less impacted by worldwide pandemics than tourism?
1: Well, the, the vineyard has been busier than ever. Um, the online sales have just gone off since uh, the COVID has come along, but also the fact that we have a lot of space uh, and outdoors and, and picnics is the main thing we sell. People have really liked that and, uh, and that's obviously very COVID friendly in a lot of ways. So yeah, the picnics have been really busy, taking alpaca for a walk. They they, uh, they were a business up high up on Lamington National Park Road, about 10 kilometres from our resort. And uh, when Cyclone Debbie came along and wrecked our road back in 2017, uh, their business went down the tubes and they sort of had to close up. And And we offered them to set up if they wanted to on our property because they were Conungra people. And we said, you can serve on our property for nothing, if you like. And uh, and that'll, you know, if someone takes your alpaca for a walk, wants to feed an alpaca, you can get some money then at least for it. Well, I said, that was back in 2017. Uh, and they've just gone absolute um, gangbusters at the vineyard. It's been so popular. They would, they, they'd they have, you know, more than a hundred people do. Take their alpacas for walks on on most days. They sell picnics as well and 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 uh, and uh, merchandise, and they've done really well. and uh, And I might add, they're still still not getting charged any rent. but I think that starts next year, actually. So they a very very good relationship, and uh, and uh, they uh, they say that the best thing that ever happened to them was Cyclone Debbie closed our road because. Uh, Never had a business like they've got now.
0: Yeah. Well, I was going to say, you guys must be fairly or very uh, relationship focused just to offer your location for nothing to a, a business down the road.
1: Well, yeah. Well, it was unfortunate for them. It was, you know, it was a very tough time. Our road was closed for six weeks, and then for two years there was no buses allowed up there while we've been doing it. So, you know, it was, it was pretty hard work. But, um, but you know, I, I will have to say that there was also the, um, the idea that you know, alpacas might bring a couple of people in extras and that's always good. Um, uh, we, I must say, we didn't really have any idea that i are gonna bring in uh, literally hundreds of people each week, which they, they do. It's such a popular thing, because they're, they're sort of so easy and safe to pull around. A you know, five-year-old kid can do it or an 85-year-old person can do it and everyone in between seems to like it as well. So uh, they're, they're an interesting animal.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, I mean, you guys are obviously not uh, not shy of diversifying if the opportunity pops up, which is which is really good to see. Now, this next bit of information I saw online, so I'm going to guess it's not privileged. If it is, just say so and I'll, I'll just edit this question out. Um, but you employ about 130 people and your turnover um, last year, I think was upwards of like $13 million, which is pretty decent for a a nature resort. Do you guys have any, you're talking about a campground. Do you have any plans to expand further than that? Or are you sort of now just looking at how do we maintain what we've got?
1: No, really just looking to maintain what we've got. There's a, uh, we think the resort is, Probably big enough now. Uh, it may some rooms eventually may need to be replaced, but we think that's it's probably good good size. Uh, the campground is is uh, has always been there. It's just been run by national parks, and and we're mm-hmm. developing it to give them permanent tents as, and and a new kitchen and new bathroom and all that type of thing. So there're probably similar amounts of people coming up there. It's just that. Uh, the campground will be more under our control. Um, but yeah, you know, we think that the, the retreat itself probably is big enough and, and, uh, is a good size. It's still a size where you can get to know people and, uh, um, and, and, uh, and the villas are, have been new, but they're sort of more of a self-contained uh, experience for those that want to, um, you know, do their own cooking and maybe their own walking and stuff. But, um, uh, you know, they're, they're extremely busy these days. The villas now book out very, very quick. Uh, and um, so uh, I certainly don't see uh, any, any real uh, push by anyone to say that we need more accommodation on any of those levels, really.
0: Yeah. Now, I'm going to hazard a guess that a fair chunk of birders around Australia and possibly overseas would think that O'Reilly's is a birding resort um, that caters basically to birders. Um, I'm sure that it would be difficult to quantify, but do you have any idea what birders are worth to O'Reilly's in terms of, you know, percentage of income, or is that not something you can keep track of?
1: Yeah, not really, because, uh, you know, unfortunately they don't have a, a tattoo on their forehead for us to tell, but... Uh, <laughs> and and. and we actually did a, a survey once of uh, people, and we actually who were booking in and, and it was just a simple question: uh, do you consider yourself a birder or not and the, the figures we got back was extraordinary it was so high, it was something like thirty percent of something of people saying yes and and uh, we sort of worked out in the end that they probably you know probably half of them might have been birders, but the other half are probably just people who were more nature or like birds and and you know, yeah. uh, said yes to that question the way it was formed so it probably didn't quite give us the figures that we're after but uh, the birding uh, fraternity is a you know, like it's a great sport because it's it's so low impact um, it's, it's it's got uh, the opportunity of a lot of different age groups and uh, and it's very very popular. With, uh with with the people who are into it are really quite often really into it and uh, and I think we're very well known for our bird week up there and probably that helps um, but you know we're very lucky to have such great birds right at our doorstep you know there's there's still quite a few groups birding groups from America that come to us who don't even use their own guys they bring their own guys with them because the guys they they know our pretty well, and they know what birds and where to go looking for them, and uh, and do their own thing. So yeah, it is a it is an important part of our business. Um, but they are a they are a, a uh, you know a, a sort of like a secret society that yeah you could be sitting beside a group of birders, and you, you you if they didn't have all their binoculars around their neck, you probably wouldn't know it.
0: So you you mentioned uh, you mentioned Bird Week, which is probably I would say. One of the best, if not the best-known birding festival in Australia. How did how did that come about?
1: Yeah, well, I, I again, I might be um, a bit biased, but I'm pretty sure it's the best-known birding week in in Australia. Uh, certainly, a lot of people have tried to copy it, but um, you know, this this year will be our forty-third annual week, uh, uh, which is you know not a bad. Not a bad record, I suppose, and, and we can have mm-hmm. anything from from 50 to 100 people for a whole week who uh, uh, who not only look at birds up at O'Reilly's, but look at birds in the valleys, to look at waders off the Gold Coast on the, on the islands. Uh, they do the whole region in that week. And uh, there's been, the interesting part, there's probably a group of 20 or twenty-five people who have been to probably forty of those forty-three weeks, and they come mm-hmm. every year, and so it's a real camaraderie thing. And there's people who are who are excellent birders, but there's also people who are just starting out and getting it for, for the first time, and uh, and so there's a there's a, that, a good community feel about it. And so people, if they if they're really good or or, or just Ordinary but interested. I think generally they they feel comfortable being a part of it, and I think that's what gives it that little bit of extra difference to other other bird weeks. Uh, and uh, of course, from where we are located, I said you can drive to some great spots, but you can walk straight out the, the front door and, and see some great birds as well.
0: So we're going to talk next week with Matt, who is one of the better birdos. Based at O'Reilly's um, about birding in Lamington and O'Reilly's, so uh, we won't go into that too much now. But I just had one more question for you around your thoughts on nature-based tourism now versus, I guess, when you got into it. We you don't want to go all the way back to nineteen twenties because that's different, but say nineteen nineties. Have you seen any trends, or you know, older people, younger people? If you exclude the last six months has the overseas market gone up or down do you have any thoughts on that oh i think
1: i think the market is absolutely growing and uh, i think it's growing in all demographics and age um there's no doubt younger people are uh are keen to learn more and experience more in nature they're probably a little less patient for it however but uh, mm-hmm. but they are are interested and I think uh, older people too are, are possibly more interested these days than before just because of and, and certainly things that have gone on recently with COVID is probably I don't think that's diminished anything I think probably solidified it even further so um, um, yeah it's it's um, uh, I think you, you have to be careful to ensure that what you're doing is right and you are uh, you know not only talking the talk, you're walking it, because people uh, are not, uh, they're aware of, you know, greenwashing, they call it these days, where you're, you know, uh, you say you might be eco-friendly, but you're not. Well, uh, I think you really need to make sure you, you are hitting the mark these days, because people are, are interested, but are also pretty learned and aware, and uh, then make sure that uh, if they're spending their good money and believing you, they want to make sure and see that you're, you're doing the right thing as well mm. So normally
0: I ask uh, guests who come on the show what their favourite birding location is, but I know that you're not a <laughs> you're not a hardcore birdo so um, <laughs> I, I'm, instead I might ask ha, who's your favourite guest that you've had at, at O'Reilly's have you ever had any David Attenborough's of the world come and stay
1: there? Oh, we've had David Attenborough a couple of times, and uh, oh, well there you go. And he's he's been he's great. Like with the, his, some of some of his bow bird footage, you know they'll have a uh, a cameraman and those who, who will be there getting footage for eight months, eight months, mm. and then David will turn up for twenty four hours and do all the all the breakaways, shootaways, and everything, and you will end up with this great. Great video with David Edinburgh showing everything. It's just amazing how much work does by others to go into those shows. But, but uh, I think I think David uh, I think David uh, he was um, obviously a bit younger in those days. But we've still got a photo of him up on the guest house wall, feeding the regent Bowerbirds, uh running on his hand when he was there. And he did the regents once, and he did Bowerbird, uh, satin Bowerbird on a second visit.
0: Interestingly enough, I was talking to a friend yesterday about um, his documentaries and their videoing and how long it must take them to get some of the shots they do, so that's that's quite interesting. Um, yeah. Well, we might leave it at that so you can get back to your paperwork. But thanks for coming on the show and giving us a bit of a history of O'Reilly's, and I look forward next week to chatting to Matt and seeing seeing what he's got to say about the... The actual birding of the place so um, thanks again for coming on and all the best once COVID lets us get back into what we want to be doing yeah sure thanks mate so thanks everyone for listening to that like I said feel free to send through any feedback you have always happy to hear it if you think of anyone else that I should have on the show uh, let me know about them as well and I'll chase them up and I hope you'll have a great weekend and a brilliant week of birding next week and until next time. Happy burning.